You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Welcome to episode 22 of the Cool Collaborations Podcast, where we pick up on our conversation from the last episode with Ryan Stewart and Christine Jenkins of the NASA Center of Excellence for Collaboration and Innovation. Please enjoy the rest of our conversation. Are there problems that you would suggest don't, that are sort of not really appropriate for this kind of an approach? Like you kind of need to separate sort of what should you do from what you shouldn't do in the, in a crowdsourcing arena. And I'm kind of curious, what's, what puts something in the intent versus the out tent? I don't think there's too much in the out tent. There are, I have come across restrictions with uh, patient data Hmm. uh, when you're doing data science challenges that make it very difficult to release this data for the public to work on. It can be done. It's just a lot of work. Uh, Other times the problem is just too big. And I think Ryan can maybe talk to that and how we, how we would attack a problem that someone says, you know, solve world hunger. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty much all the problems that are on that out tent aren't crowdsourcing's fault. <laughs> it's so <laughs> it's, it's more about like things that are just too difficult to bring to the public, like Christine said, or the problem is just too big in itself. Like for the world hunger problem, she, she said, everyone already knows about world hunger. Everyone realizes it's a problem. And if somebody had a bright solution to just fix it, they would have done so already and probably made a bunch of money or at least helped everybody, right? So you can't bring to the crowd, solve world hunger or anything nearly equivalent. You can't say very often, bring me this whole rocket system. Because if you want someone to, to integrate all that information, they probably need to be an aerospace engineer or at least have all those systems engineering and all the different skill sets to do that. But what you can do is say, let me break up this rocket system or let me break up world hunger into a small part and I can do that as an expert, right? That's what we do is our project owners are experts. And Kosi, myself, Christine, and the rest of us are pretty good at helping them identify their problems and break them into little little chunks that can then go to the crowd. So that's what's really good about crowdsourcing are solving those little chunks. So we take a little problem. Maybe it's not the rocket system, but we need some innovation on the little tubing that's used, you know, for the oxidizer to go through, just making this up. And (laughs) then what we do is we say, great, we can see what the rest of the world is doing and knows about tubing, right? And so then we bring that to our crowdsourcing contractor, and then they're really good at breaking that down to their specific crowd. So probably generalize the problem. Because one thing is you don't want to say is, we're looking to innovate on rocket tubing. Because if you just say it like that, you're probably still going to get mostly answers with people with the rocket bias. And that's not what we want. The rocket people have been working on this for a hundred plus years. So if they had a good answer, they would have given it to us already. We're looking for a, a solution outside in a different domain. And so you break down that problem and then usually it gets generalized for a broader crowd. And then that's how you can turn it into a really good crowdsourcing problem. So ultimately the answer to your question is the only things that really are on that out tent are things that are too broad because they haven't yet been broken down or things that there are outside restrictions that make it such a, that it's difficult to bring to the public. 
And I think one thing I'd, I'd go back to that potato chip example. Uh, one thing I didn't say about it is they were trying to solve it as removing you know, grease from a potato chip. And when they presented the problem, I believe Innocentive was doing this one, they phrased it differently. They said they wanted to remove a viscous, viscous, viscous fluid, fluid. Yeah. from a semi, from a delicate wafer. Yep. And, and so that change, that took a right out of that food science community and opened it up. Yeah. So reframing it so that everybody can see, you know, their expertise in the solution, essentially. Exactly. What happens with the solutions that people bring in? So let's say I was a violinist and I was uh, had just proposed the solution for the, the potato chip. That solution becomes essentially the the property, I guess, it, that the intellectual property transfers to the to the agency. Is that how it, how it works? Like you you're submitting and then it becomes... It's not something you can hold up over time and say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to charge for my idea. That's not how it works. Is that true? It depends. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. So um, generally speaking, what we try to do and what we do the most often is something along the lines of a government purpose license. And so we want to enable this person to still utilize their IP to go start a business or do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. They just can't charge the government for it for that solution. Now, like, should they innovate upon that? Do you pay for the different, the Delta between what they provided and the innovation? Like that, that all becomes, you know, the legalese, but generally speaking, NASA or fed fed agencies will get that solution and they can use it and they've kind of paid for it. It can't be charged for it in the future. Now, lots of times, particularly with other federal agencies, they're just looking to stimulate that sector and so they actually don't take any IP. And the whole point of the the whole point of the contest was just to get people working on this because we need it. And so it, it kind of varies. Yeah. It, it's interesting how that all flows and actually creates sort of knock-on effects in terms of creativity on top of the creativity. So you, you have a contest, you've evaluated a number of answers or solutions, and there's obviously one or maybe a, a couple that rise to the top. But there's got to be some interesting novel novel ideas or approaches that sort of are further down in the pack. And do those sort of just get lost? Or is there the opportunity for some of those insights that are uncovered to be used maybe elsewhere or built upon or anything like that? So I'll start. I have a really good example. So a contest we did, oh, I guess it's a couple of years now, was for NASA. It was looking to create a mechanical sensor for a Venus rover. So I don't know if you know much about Venus, but it's really high pressure, really high temperatures, such that electronics basically don't work. Like you have to use very simple electronics, if anything. And you're stretching the limits of my knowledge of Venus at this point. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, So it was a really complicated rover concept. And so they needed sensors that can detect positive or negative slope and positive or negative like boulders or things like holes and things, right? So you need a rover to not run into things that would cause it to stop working. And so it gets kind of complicated. And we have folks at JPL who are PhDs thinking about these designs and they still wanted to use the crowd to help them bring in a good solution to move forward. And originally, I want to say we were going to pay out three, I think it was a top three, we're going to get paid. And anytime we pay somebody, that's where that there's that IP transfer discussion that we talked about. And there were so many good solutions that 
we actually went back, found a little bit more money, and we ended up paying out at least two more. And so this is an example of what you asked, where we have the ability on the challenge side to work with the contractor to you know, add more prize money than we anticipated. We also have the ability to negotiate IP after the challenge is over completely, if that's the way we want to go about it. Mm-hmm. It's never something that the solvers have to do. We've seen solvers back out of competitions because they they recognize that they had a particularly valuable solution that they didn't want to give up for you know whatever the prize money was. We've seen times where we wanted a solution in addition to the top however many we were going to pay out and Maybe we didn't come to terms on what the prize was, but almost every time they're so happy to win a prize and that becomes a resume builder for them. And the fact that they've contributed to NASA or contributed to whatever you know government agency working for, that becomes way more than whatever the dollar amount is that almost every time they're super excited to, to take part of that. And frequently we also will pay, I think Christine said this earlier, in non-monetary prizes. So somebody who gives a really good design, in fact, it happened with this Venus rover one, where the engineering team that was going to be utilizing their solutions, which they did, right? They bring in all these solutions and they kind of hybridize them to make the best version of that for NASA. And all the winners were given the opportunity to have, I think it was like an hour meeting with the engineering team to discuss their solutions. And what cooler thing do you want to be from somebody from another country getting to talk about the solution you came up with with the NASA engineering team who's going to use it? And so sometimes there's non-monetary prizes like that. Sometimes, you know, we'll we'll do certificates or even offer tours or it, it really depends on the, the project owners and the problem. But there's lots of ways to pull in the solutions that whatever we want for the government. So if we say, hey, the top 10 provide a lot of value, we need to go get those. If there's a way to do it, we usually do. That sort of goes back to the comments we were talking about there with how you evaluate them so that you can recognize that they are top 10. You know, there is something novel here that needs to be followed up on. That's That would be an incredibly challenging part of the whole process, I would imagine, that whole uh-huh. evaluating the solutions piece. Yep. And our contractors have a lot of experience doing this. Like That's their business model. And so we really rely on them to provide us those successes. And they do a really good job of it. Do you see quite a a range of ages involved in these challenges and the people that you see participating? Do you see young people or old people or or have there been any really good examples of, say, some people you would not have expected to be involved to suddenly come up with a great idea? Again, it depends, right? (laughs) Uh, But for most of our competitions, now we do have student-focused competitions for, for the youth, but For our projects, you typically have to be over 18 years of age because we have to be able to pay an adult (laughs) uh, (laughs) should you win. (laughs) But we don't, I I don't think we delve into people's ages, do we, Ryan? That's kind of personal. It it definitely depends. But um, typically we're getting adults that are competing unless we're specifically looking for students or younger folks solutions, which occasionally we do. We'll have STEM related outreach type competitions occasionally we have some ongoing right now even and there are examples though where we'll have a technical competition and the intent is only to bring in basically adults but kids have really good ideas they're very motivated very innovative and they'll have their parents submit on behalf of them and sometimes they're really good solutions you would be surprised there's actually one we had a challenge a little over about a year ago and it was looking at basically getting really good refrigeration techniques 
for bringing samples from the moon all the way back to the earth, which is super complicated, as you can imagine. And honestly, one of the closer to the top, but at least better than average solutions that came in, came in from an 11-year-old in Arizona. And we're actually working right now to try to get some non-monetary certificate type things to this 11-year-old because we want to keep that person inspired to keep working hard because he beat out a lot of people that were probably legitimately prepared for this kind of work by a technical background or whatever, or at least years on earth experience that he didn't have. And so occasionally we see that. We've also seen occasions where we have a technical problem and the contractor recognizes it's going to be very popular. In fact, two of our most popular challenges we've ever done, and frankly, are easily arguably the most popular crowdsourcing competitions done by anyone anywhere, were both NASA projects that were related to human feces, because that just, for whatever reason, is a very (laughs) fun thing for people to take part in. Everyone loves that. (laughs) And so one was called Space Poop. That was the first one, and that was probably the most popular one we've ever done. Um, But we, we did a second one that was similar to that, and both of these had huge reach, get picked up by every major U.S. media company, and we see interview requests from all over the world. And because it was so popular, the second version, we had one called Lunar Lou, where we're looking at building a toilet for the moon and anticipating we're going to get a wide gamut of responses, knowing the subject matter. The contractor actually suggested, why don't we split this up into two? Let's do a like kid's version and a more technical adult's version. Yeah. And it worked extremely well. And we had all kinds of youth have really cool, innovative ideas But the best part of it was that they got to participate and they had a place for them to participate. And so we got to ingest those solutions from both sides. And it's super heartwarming being on the end of NASA side, getting to see how excited people are, especially the kids to participate in these competitions. Well, you could imagine how a group of kids works on a a solution and then you could see where you can set, you know, that kid up for life, essentially, or those kids up for life to be interested in anything technical and anything engineering, especially if there was some kind of a follow-up. Like it's a case where NASA would like to speak to you about your idea and build. Has it ever happened where you might have a particular solution that comes in and then you, it may not be quite there, but it actually requires just another, a bit of a back and forth with the project designer. And I'm I'm thinking of the kid, the 11-year-old that you were talking about, it could be that his idea just requires a little bit of discussion with somebody in an in an expert role to, to sort of bounce back and forth. I'm just curious, does that ever factor in or would that be something that's valuable, do you think? I, I'm going to end up deferring this back to Christine and she's not going to like that. But, <laughs> um, but, the, but I'll explain first. I think the closest we get to that are often the uh, competitions that are purposefully set up in phases. And uh, that's because we'll recognize it's a bi- kind of a big problem. And rather than just break it into an individual, individual chunk and leave it there, you know, they're going to say, we're going to solve this part first. Then we're going to work on it and solve this part. And a lot of times you start with an idea and you end with hardware or something along those lines. And those ones tend to see that mentorship role, you know, the more active role of the project owners helping the solvers more often than not. Uh, We have to be really careful generally doing that because we need to be fair. And if there's anything that we're providing one solver, we have to provide that to everybody. And you have to realize the average number of solvers we have for these will often be in the hundreds. And we can't possibly support 
a hundred meetings to discuss all of those things. And also recognize, no offense to the general public, but the general public doesn't know what they're talking about most of the time. And it's not like like they don't know what they're talking about in the world, but there's a reason why there are aerospace engineers. There's a reason why there are you know scientists. And so not every single general public person who's going to try to solve something is going to provide value. Most of them won't. It's the same as if you ask me to solve about anything. Most of the time, I won't because it's not my expertise. But every once in a while, I'm going to have just the right background and expertise to provide that value. And so not all the time do we do that. But uh, I don't know, Christine, if you want to add anything about kind of specifically, what is that you know, mentorship role or the back and forth look like often with those multi-phase competitions? Sure. One, one that comes to mind, and it's not student-related or, or youth-related, is MagQuest. So you can think of the Earth as an enormous magnet, right? And all the compasses you use, use that magnetic field to figure out where the heck you are, which direction you're pointing. But geographic and magnetic poles aren't always the same, and there's a difference. And so there's something called the world magnetic model that corrects for that difference. And, you know, the world, the world's magnetic field is just, it's constantly changing. And so you have to keep updating that world magnetic model or WMM to recognize that change. And you care about this. You may not know this, Scott, but you care. (laughs) Anybody with a cell phone cares, right? Because you are using the world magnetic model. And the data that feeds that model was coming from a European satellite constellation that was getting old and there was no plan to replace it. And that, was, that would be a big problem for pretty much everybody, right, on the planet. And so the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency went on a mission to figure out an approach to find data to feed this world magnetic model. Now, that's a really hard problem. And we are now in phase 4A of that. So, you know, the first three phases was over $2 million in prizes. And as we went from phase to phase, we had not only the NGA subject matter experts, we had other experts from universities, from geological surveys in England, advising the participants as we scaled down. And we had office hours with them. And we were, like Ryan said, very fair across the board. But we keep honing in and honing in, and now we're down to three finalists. And we're about to uh, kick off another phase of this with the three finalists. And I I can't say exactly how much it will be, but that's in the tens of millions of dollars. And it's very exciting to see this come to fruition, and it's saving the government millions and millions of dollars by using this approach. Right. I like that description for a couple of reasons, because it makes me think about the big complex problems. Ryan talked about, you know, niching it down to a problem that works for crowdsourcing. But what you're talking about, Christine, is sort of this idea that you can actually use crowdsourcing across a big, a big problem by simply breaking it into either phases or steps or and and being able to plan through that would be kind of interesting to say we're gonna we're gonna do this part of the question or problem first and then we're gonna work on this part. And you can start to, you know, stick it all together like Lego and and come up with, you know, your project at the end. I was going to say the Death Star because I got that, <laughs> that idea in my head that, you know, you can have this this great big massive Lego project from all the pieces, which is right. really cool. It takes work. I mean, it doesn't come just like right out of the box. Um, and on that particular <laughs> one, we worked with Luminary Labs and we had a, 
a series of, you know, co-creation workshops and discovery discussions. And, you know, it took many months to launch something of this magnitude. And what you'll find is it's the project owners and the contractors as well who have that expertise in their crowd and crowdsourcing who are the glue that holds that together. And so what we find is most organizations aren't comfortable yet giving up that much. They're not ready to say, help me develop the whole system. We're going to, we're going to crowdsource from, from a to B, you know, they're just ready to give up a little bit because they're all, most of them are still testing the water. But what Christine said is a perfect example that you can do those big problems and you, you continue to be the glue that holds it together because you're the expert who knows how to, to take the solutions and put them together and keep it working as a project. But where we're at in the present time, most people are like, oh, I heard this. I might, be, I might be able to find some funding so in some time so that we can take ingest this little bit of a solution. But hopefully we can continue to get closer to everyone doing MagQuest type problems. <laughs> this has been a really great conversation because it's kind of put a whole different frame on collaboration. It's about going to a, di- like a completely different crowd. <laughs> But also it, it sort of changes the view of what facilitation is too, because when people think about, like I'm a facilitator of groups, but not anywhere near the kind of scale or complexity that you guys are involved with. So you guys are sort of the tip of the spear in terms of get things organized. There's contractors that are making it happen and the problems are, are interesting, but it's just another, a whole different approach to making collaboration work. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to you wanna speak to? I would just say what you just described, dream job, Scott, dream job. <laughs> I mean, for me personally, I get to look across so many different federal agencies and see so many interesting projects and see the good that comes out of them. And that, that doesn't get boring. <laughs> yeah, I, I echo that. And it's, it's not just that we're fortunate because we are, but... We are absolutely enabling the U.S. government to get good solutions and save lots of time and money. Like, there's no question. We, like we talked about, we have data that proves what we are doing is real and what we are doing is absolutely a benefit. And so it's really cool to know that we're helping you know, provide that benefit. And it's really not just the U.S. government. It's to the world, right? We are, we are helping move innovation and technology and things much faster than would have happened otherwise. The one other thing I want to say, make sure I have a plug, is that if anyone listening is interested in being a participant, please do. We want all the solvers we can get. We want you to help NASA and the rest of the U.S. federal government get good problems, and hopefully you can earn money and get the gold guts, glory, and good that that you all crave, that I would crave. Uh, so go to nasa.gov solve, and you can see all the problems that we post. And if you just want to see all the government problems, not just the ones that come from our NASA tournament lab, go to challenge.gov. That's fantastic. And and so I'll make sure that those links and other information that we've talked about are captured in the show notes so people can always go to them as well. I always sort of like to follow up with a sort of quick answer, short answer kinds of questions, just a, a couple at the end. And I've made it a routine to ask everybody I speak to about sort of books that have influenced them. Often it'll be a book that has influenced them, but maybe it's a book you've given as a gift. Is there anything, any book you would suggest that has been a big influence in your career? And it doesn't have to be about collaboration or crowdsourcing. It can just be whatever, whatever is top of mind. Christine? Sure. When I got this 
position, this job, and I was told, okay, you're going to go work on crowdsourcing. I did not know what it was, to be honest with you. I really did not. I knew crowdfunding. Everybody knows crowdfunding, but I didn't know crowdsourcing. But what was needed was my background in acquisition and system engineering. And so it's pretty easy to to pick up. But in order to acquaint myself with it, there was a, there was a book by Jeff Howe. It's called Crowdsourcing, Why the Power of the Crowd is Driving the Future of Business. And I, I read this book and actually Steve Rader uh, recommended it to me. And when I set it down, I said, this is revolutionary. <laughs> this is just purely revolutionary. And it just went on from there. Very nice. Ryan, over to you. I am going to give you the worst kind of answer to this, which is... It better not be I it am, depends. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not it depends this time. It's honestly, it's hard for me to pick one. I am an unfortunately indecisive person. And though I do read kind of regularly now, they all blend together to me. And I, I don't know that I can give you a single answer, even having given time to prep this question. <laughs> so my apologies to you right. and the listeners if this uh, gets aired. <laughs> What do you think, Christine? Should we let him off? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please edit that out. <laughs> um, what would you say has been one of the most memorable moments working at NASA? I, I've had a few. I, I'll, I'll give you a couple, just like probably two different kinds. So my first job was as a flight controller and instructor for the space station. And there's a lot of effort and training that goes into getting certified to, to do those roles. Like it, it's very difficult and very stressful. And so there have been a few occasions where I was working in mission control and there were problems. There aren't very many problems, which is a good thing, but there's occasionally problems. And one of those was uh, one of my last shifts, actually, before I came to COSI, the Soyuz, which is the Russian human transporting vehicle that takes humans from the ground the capsule that takes them up to the space station had an anomaly during the launch phase and there was quite a while of time where us on in houston on ground in mission control didn't know what happened we just knew something went wrong we lost feed to the astronauts mm. and we didn't know what happened and it was frightening it was extremely scary and felt very helpless very fortunately the backup systems worked and they landed somewhere with parachutes in kazakhstan and they were able to be retrieved. They were okay. It worked out fine. But having to rely on the skill set that we had trained so hard for of, you know, what do I need to do? What's my focus? All of a sudden, it was really hard not to just sit there and just worry about those astronauts. But I had to reconfigure the space station because we had, we had already started configurations for this, you know, rocket that's coming up. The capsule is going to dock. There's things you have to do. And so immediately the ground team, you know, probably took, a minute to like worry and then we just got right back into it and you have to kind of push that aside that is very memorable i'll never forget that feeling because it was years and years of training for those few seconds of being super scared which really turned out to be probably a little bit less than an hour of being really scared right the one other is i was very fortunate to give multiple tours and help escort different folks, students, sometimes celebrities at Johnson Space Center. And I would help brief them about mission control or the astronaut training facility. And particularly when students come, lots of times, you know, high school students or young college students maybe who are interested in interning, et cetera, when I'm able to give them those tours and to see the excitement on their face, or maybe it's even like, you know, young elementary school kids, they just have 
so much enthusiasm for being there and just learning about everything that NASA is doing that it absolutely reminds the fortunate people like Christine and I like, oh yeah, our job is awesome. Because it's easy anywhere you work, surprisingly, even at NASA, you can say after a while, it just starts to feel kind of like a job. And so when someone's like, oh my gosh, you work here? You know all that stuff? You look young. How do you know all that stuff? <laughs> like, how did you do that? How did you fly the space station? You know, how did you sit there? And when you can talk to them through that and tell them that I'm just a kid from Washington who never thought I would be doing this and I worked hard in school and, you know, I, I had some extracurriculars and I, you know, I, I just made sure that I was always working down the right path and it eventually led me to getting here. Like all of a sudden I can kind of tell them my story and they could say, I could do that too. That's my second thing. Like being able to provide that inspiration and feel it back from the kids who are really excited to maybe someday work for NASA. Those are both inspiring and fantastic examples. And I think it seems like the work you're doing now is kind of almost an extension of that because now you're now you're in sort of a broader solution space, it seems. Christine, what about you? Wow. I mean, I'm inspired, Ryan. <laughs> I, 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 I don't think I can come up with anything even close to that. I do. Um, I guess my, my moments are, you know, they, they come quite often, right? It's, it's just seeing the appreciation. So I work primarily with external agencies, right? Not, not NASA work as much. And just seeing that appreciation for the procurement mechanisms we have that enable them to get things done that they, they just couldn't make happen in their own agencies. And that's, you know, it can be very frustrating when, you, you know, you, you're told, go do this, and then your internal bureaucracy or processes kind of tie your hands behind your back. So we are that, that mechanism that through interagency agreements and the Economy Act, we allow them to use our contracting mechanisms and we, we can make it real for them. You know, that's a model that I think more agencies need to look into in terms of like across the globe in a way is getting out of their own way so that we can have innovation and creativity and cool ideas. Yeah. Speaking to what Christine said, the kinds of things that we hear on the regular are folks from like, there was a group from TSA who did a challenge with us where they were looking at passenger screening, right? You go into those millimeter wave detection things where you put your arms up and you have to get scanned whenever you're going on in the airport. And they were looking to improve the algorithm so that they would get less false positives. And after that competition, the TSA project owner said, this was the be best million dollars we've ever spent. And to hear that kind of thing, which we start to kind of, we hear that all the time. So we forget, we forget how cool it is. I know Christine hears those all the time. And so absolutely on the regular now, we're having kind of those best days at NASA. Oh, very nice. My daughter feels that uh, she gets singled out for that scan every single time we go to the airport to the point where she just vol <laughs> she just volunteers now. She doesn't even get asked. She just says, I, yeah, I'll go in there. Yeah. <laughs> my, my last question for you is probably maybe the most complicated, most you know, difficult question of them all. When you're cleaning... Cleaning up, what do you clean first? Your car, your bedroom, or your office? Ryan? My bedroom. I, I don't like clutter, and that's a place that I have to walk by a lot. And if I have to see that clutter a lot, I think it would really bother me. Excellent. Christine? The same. My bedroom is got to be in pristine order because when I retire at the end of the day, I need to go into a peaceful situation that is organized. And being a type one person, I don't like disorder. 
All right. So I that what that tells me is I don't want to see either of your cars. <laughs> yeah, they're. I, I don't have to use it much given the pandemic. I, well, that's true. It just yeah. kind of sits in my driveway. You know, I, I want to say thanks for, for taking the time. This was a really fun conversation that kind of went in a bunch of different directions. And I learned a lot. So thank you for your time and for speaking with me today. Of course. Glad, happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate you taking the interest in what we do. Excellent. Thank you. So that wraps up my discussion with Christine and Ryan of the NASA Center of Excellence for Collaboration and Innovation. This was a really fun and informative discussion, and it really highlighted for me the ability of crowdsourcing to drive innovation in a way that promotes equality and diversity and inclusivity, which are all things we need more of in the world today. This is especially highlighted by the example that Ryan put forward of the 11-year-old who contributed an idea that caught the attention of the NASA experts. It really shows the power of crowdsourcing to access ideas beyond what we would normally envision as collaboration. And by collaboration in that sense, I'm thinking of the typical putting people in a room type of collaboration. I certainly hope you enjoyed our conversation. I know I certainly enjoyed recording it. If you like this episode, please think of a few friends who might like it as well. Tell them about the episode and about the show. And if they're new to podcasting, show them how to follow us. Until the next time, happy collaborating. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating. Collaborating.